If you saw Atlas, the giant who holds the world on his shoulders, if you saw that he stood, blood running down his chest, his knees buckling, his arms trembling, but still trying to hold the world aloft with the last of his strength, and the greater his efforts, the heavier the world bore down on his shoulders, what would you tell him to do? I don't know. What could he do? What would you tell him? To shrug. Neil, good morning. How are you doing today? Morning, pretty good. And we've been looking forward to this episode and preparing for this episode for what feels like months now. And I think it has been, it's probably been what, like three months? It has been months. <laughs> since we planned this. Yeah. <laughs> I think we came up with the idea in January, maybe. Yeah. And then we've been slowly pushing back the recording date since this is, <laughs> I, I think it's actually one of the 10 longest books in a Latin based language. Jeez. Yeah. I'm not disputing that in any way after going through it. And I think by the time people are listening to this, it's probably, if not June, it's just about June. So it's a six-month process to bring you this episode. Yeah, it was an effort, but we were excited to be here. And the book we were talking about, of course, is Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, a much, should we say, maligned book in certain circles. I'd That's fair. Maybe yeah. controversial. I'd say maligned, controversial, it very much admired by certain people because I. it's one of those books that you hear a lot of people, not a lot, maybe, but plenty of people mention as their uh, favorite book. And then it's also considered like a hated book on the other side. So polarizing might be the, the way to, to put it. Yeah, I think polarizing is definitely a good way to frame it because it's I mean, despite the length, it's one of the one of the more famous, I think, novels historically, right? Like, oh, yeah, it's sold a massive number of copies. Uh, it's debatable how many people have actually read through it, <laughs> all 1200 pages. But although I mean, the one good thing about this book, like it's not a and I guess this is partially because it's a novel, even though it's 1200 pages, it's not a it's not like reading like a 1200 page, like nonfiction dry book. Like there's a plot. It moves. I mean, at times it does get it becomes a slog. But at other times, it's just like it reads like, you know, a almost a pop novel in some times, mm -hmm. some portions of the book. Yeah, I mean, the action definitely picks up at times. And I, it's funny. I mean, to me, once you get through the first 400 pages, it starts to get much more exciting. Yeah. You just have to <laughs> commit to those first 400 pages. <laughs> it's like once you read like a whole long book, then it's time to like, then you'll settle in and the plot gets going. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then you start to yeah. get into the rising action. It's a 400 pages of exposition. But yeah, I mean, we we've had this on our list for a while because I think we both, you know, we both read it before we both really enjoyed it and found it impactful when we read it. We have, I think, a lot of friends who cite it as one of the more impactful books they've read. And it seemed like a good candidate for trying to do an episode on a fiction book. Yep. And when did you first read it, by the way? I read it junior, junior or sophomore, I think sophomore, maybe year of high school. Oh, wow. Okay. So you read it early. Yeah, I think I read it sophomore year. I think I read it between sophomore and junior year of college. So I read it a lot later. Yeah. It was nice. It had been a while, right? And I'd been meaning to reread it at some point. So this was a good excuse to kind of, I think, force my way back through it. Yeah. And I mean, there were a ton of themes that were, you know, I think we've previously talked about on the show and are just like very relevant in society today um, that pop up throughout the book, which was pretty interesting because I think the first time I read it, I don't know about you, I was just like a lot less aware of a lot of these issues. And I think some of these things kind of went over my head. Like, I didn't realize how much of a how many references to like postmodernism are yeah. in this book. Like, there's a lot, which totally went over my head the first time. I, I actually was 
very surprised when I was going through it this time that these were here. I was like, how did I not even notice this last time? I had no idea the book like had that as kind of like a counterpoint to postmodernism effectively. Yeah, well, it's really a, you know, as a counterpoint to postmodernism and socialism, right? So exactly because this is kind of the background of the book. So I picked up all the socialism part, right? Yeah, they were they were very, you know, I would say um, overt about that. And I guess, you know, we learned about socialism in school and it was something I was, you know, aware of. Whereas postmodernism, I would heard the term when I'd read this book, but I didn't really know what it was. And that's probably why it went over my head. But yeah, I mean, it was just interesting going through it a second time of like, there was a bunch of stuff in here. I just didn't even recall at all. I didn't even know it was part of the book. Yeah. And I mean, to give some context for it, Ayn Rand grew up in Soviet Russia, kind of during the first two world wars, and then left to come to the States and basically became a political philosopher slash novelist and used these books, you know, probably most famous for Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged to kind of discuss her political philosophy through the lenses of these characters, which is not a very common thing to do. It's very like almost in the style of Plato, right? Hmm. Yeah, where because, you know, he did that obviously with his like Socrates as the mouthpiece and these characters having these discussions. And then she's kind of tried to emulate that style, I think, with Atlas Shrugged and fountainhead with these very you know socrates like nearly perfect characters that are kind of stuck in these dialogues and these situations and conversations and using that as a way to share the philosophy and not many philosophers throughout history have like taken that route which makes i think her work particularly interesting yeah and i think you touched on it there but i think that's one of the points of what's the way to put it like that's one of the points of criticism that people have yeah for her is that her characters are, you know, you hear the word flat when they talk about Ayn Rand characters. And I think, you know, I think that's fair. They're not necessarily like evolving like they would in a novel. But I think it also depends on the lens that you look at her work through, right? If you if you look at it as a work of philosophy, I think that criticism isn't necessarily that important because really she's using these characters, as you said, as basically a device to get these these points across. Whereas, you know, if you were looking at it as a pure novel, you know, I think that's much more of a fair criticism yeah. in that case. Agreed. But yeah, if you look at it, it's more of a it is a novel, but it's a novel. It's a piece of philosophy disguised as a novel. Yeah. So I don't. Yeah, I don't think the character thing is, I, you know, it's it's definitely there. Like, and it, it can be frustrating at times. You're like, this person is not really acting like a human being. Yep. But like, as long as you keep in mind that, like, this is not really a novel in the same way like harry potter is a novel it's yeah you can get over that pretty quick but yeah so i mean the main thing we had to figure out was you know, what was the best way for us to try to do this as an episode without giving away too much of the plot right and luckily you know kind of like how you just alluded to a lot of the book is i guess you'd say like interwoven with these philosophical almost essays that become yep. speeches from the characters. And you can actually get a lot of the philosophy just by reading a few of these speeches and discussing them uh, without having to dig too deeply into the rest of the plot. And so I think that's what we're going to try to focus on in this episode is a few of those speeches and just for like the ideas from them, because we also I mean, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't read the book, we don't want to spoil everything for you. Yeah, we highly encourage you to go read the book. Probably going to have to spoil some stuff, but we don't have to spoil everything. 
Yeah, and I think even if, like, I mean, we just read it for the second time, and I wouldn't say it was, like, spoiled because we know how it ends. No. I don't think that was the... I mean, you know, yeah, there are some books that, like, or movies, you know, same thing. It's like, once you know the end, it's kind of like, what's the point of seeing the rest of the movie? But this is not one of those, I would say. It actually, I mean, I liked rereading it, knowing how it ended, because I caught more things that hinted at the third part of the book. Yeah. Which was kind of fun. And also, well, that... Plus, it also probably let you focus a little more on the philosophy yeah. than the plot itself. Because I think I that's what I really remembered is I remembered the first time I read it, it was like, I think I read it in like a month, which, you know, okay, like, that's not that fast, but it's also like much faster than we did this time. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the only reason I went that fast is because I was so focused on the plot. Like, I was just like, oh, this is really interesting, which it is. I mean, the plot is pretty interesting. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot more than just the plot. So even if we spoil a couple things, we'll try not to spoil too much. But even if we do, it's still very much worth reading. And if you're really against spoilers, then we're sorry. <laughs> yeah, go read the book and then listen to this episode in six months when you finish it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think maybe we'll just do like a quick five minute, you know, brief plot summary character introduction, and then we'll dive into this first speech. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Cool. First one, I guess we'll start with this goes. Yeah, yeah. Let's put some characters and context in place first. Just assuming that there are people listening who haven't read it. Yeah, sure. So book takes place in, I'd say, like a 1950s, you know, not like super futuristic world, but kind of a parallel world. Yeah, she doesn't really say where, when, I mean. Yeah, but you get some ideas because there's radio and there's definitely radio. And there's cars and there's like some people have TVs. So it's got to be like early 1950s. But radio is still like the dominant. Yeah, and trains are still such a big part of society, too. Yeah. And the real conflict of the book is between who, you know, Rand portrays as the like productive industrialist members of society. So the people running the railroads, people running the steel mills, the copper mines, the banks, the... Um, and like philosophy departments and universities, right? These real like, you know, she uses the term creators, producers, and it's sort of them against the more the like socialist representative members who are usually referred to as like looters or moochers. Yeah, parasites. Yeah, parasites trying to like take what they haven't earned. And the conflict of the book is that, you know, the productive members of society are disappearing. So it starts off slowly, and then as the book progresses, more and more of them are leaving, right? They're just shutting down their businesses and disappearing. Sometimes destroying it, too, destroying their businesses. Yeah, and sometimes destroying it in the process. Yeah, like, uh, you know, there's one character who literally burns down his entire business and then disappears into kind of like thin air. And they're all extremely important members of like the national economy, right? They're running the it'd be like the CEO of GM just like burned down GM and disappeared, right? Well, I would even go beyond that, right? Because GM, there are alternatives. I would go to right. with like Google or like maybe not Facebook, but Google would be such an integral part to how we do everything these days, right? Like not necessarily everything, but okay, Google might be maybe even a stretch, but like Apple or even AT&T or like some companies that are effectively like used by everyone yeah in some ways right so yeah i guess gm it could be but it's just that there are so many other car companies it would just be like okay well you know buy a ford or buy a <laughs> nissan or something but yeah i'm trying to think like 
Google might be one. I mean, or like if if like the CEOs of Delta and American just like burned down the planes and disappeared. Right. Yeah. It's stuff like that, like national infrastructure type of things. Yeah. And so the the more that these people up and leave, the more that kind of members of government and these non-producers try to take control of the economy in order to save it, as they would say, right, try to make sure that it's not like going to completely collapse, that people are still going to be able to eat, that they can get food and resources to people, but also because they kind of see competition as destructive, right? And they are trying to, I mean, it really is like trying to implement socialism in American economy, trying to make all of the factories produce at the same amount, preventing faster trains from running at higher speeds so that they don't, you know, beat out the other railroads they're competing with, preventing car manufacturers from producing more cars than their competitors can produce. Like they're implementing all of these rules because as more productive members of society leave, the economy is getting more unstable and they're kind of like trying to take more and more control over it. Yeah. And it's interesting that they think that the um, it's very much a top down versus, I mean, forget even bottom up. It's very much a top down, like imposed economy that they're trying to get to. Right. Uh, one of my favorite sections. I don't think this gives away anything, but this is, uh, I was going to give the book example, the limiting the book sales one. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got it highlighted in there. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I love that one. So basically, again, they're talking about like competition and someone proposes one of these um, one of these parasites, I guess, for lack of a better word. He proposes like how you could you know, spur competition in the literary market. He says there should be a law limiting the sale of any book to 10,000 copies. This would throw the literary market open to new talent, fresh ideas, and non-commercial writing. If people were forbidden to buy a million copies of the same piece of trash, they would be forced to buy better books. Yeah, so that that gives you an idea of the type of rules and laws that are starting to be implemented. And, And of course, you know, the more this stuff gets implemented, the faster these, you know, more capitalist minded producers leave and kind of vacate. And then pretty quickly, all that's left are the politicians who are trying to control everything. And, you know, the other businesses that are trying to take advantage of these new, like anti-competitive rules, right? Because the people that these laws benefit are the ones who can't produce as well as the more successful, like, people running other businesses, right? And so eventually, you're you're slowly being left more and more with just the losers of the economy. And those are the people running the economy, too. (laughs) Yeah. So you pretty much have the people who, yeah, the people who effectively don't understand how it works. And I mean, in general, I would say, like, any kind of top down system, as we've talked about previously on this show, right, is not the same as like a system that's produced by via like responding to people's desires. So you know, it's just a very different approach, suboptimal approach. And I think going back to the plot, like, you know, the more they try to control it, the worse the economy gets. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things she's really trying to show, right, of like, how, you know, the more you try to control this kind of organically emergent thing, the worse it's going to get. And then, of course, it's exasperated by, and we can, we'll get into this, I think, in a second, but it's exasperated by these people who, you know, have built these great companies, just basically withdrawing from the market. Yeah. So that like speeds up the fall. Exactly. And I think that actually gives us a good segue into sort of the first speech that we want to talk about. So for context, this is given by one of the main characters of the book, Francisco Danconia, who is a Spanish like copper magnet. Like I think they say in the book, he's the richest man in the world. 
because uh, he basically pretty much runs all of the copper mining in the world. But he's been kind of destroying his business, right? He's like gone from being a super successful like, copper monopolist almost to just being like a flagrant playboy all of his minds are failing he's kind of like letting his business rot under him and so he's got like a weird reputation with some of the other you know protagonists in the book particularly the person he's giving this speech to who kind of thinks francisco's like just a waste of talent and so francisco in this speech is crashing another character's it's not a wedding Oh, you know what this is? Yeah, yeah, this is the wedding. So I guess we won't reveal who is getting married, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Francisco's at a wedding and he's speaking primarily to another one of the characters in the book, Hank Reardon, who is like the super successful steel guy, right? Like he produces the most steel in the country and he's invented his own metal, which is based, which from the description is kind of like aluminum. Yeah. So he's an inventor, not just an operator. Exactly. Like yeah. he actually has developed something. And so Hank really just like, hates francisco basically because yeah. <laughs> he sees him as this massive waste of talent and so francisco is kind of crashing this other character's wedding and somebody kind of sets him off and so he launches into this speech about money and capitalism and morality so i think we can actually just start with kind of the opening lines of it and this is this is going to be francisco speaking pretty much the whole way through so he yep. says so you think that money is the root of all evil have you ever asked what is the root of money? Money is a tool of exchange, which can't exist unless there are goods produced and men able to produce them. Money is the material shape of the principle that men who wish to deal with one another must deal by trade and give value for value. Money is not the tool of the moochers who claim your product by tears or of the looters who take it from you by force. Money is made possible only by the men who produce. Is this what you consider evil? So I think he's responding here to somebody at the party who is one of these like Washington political types going on yep. about how money is the root of all evil and we need to like take it away from these people like Francisco and Hank and give it to the other businesses that are struggling. You know, the the image that came to mind for me was the IYI <laughs> yeah. in this section. Well, not just this section, but in many parts of this book. Where, yeah, the criticism of money, but like by people who've never actually understood what, you know, how someone even makes money, right? Like in particular, academics is who came to mind. Yeah, it's people who have no idea how to run these kinds of businesses and have probably never really created jobs or anything. They're just kind of like going to these parties, maybe inherited wealth or working in politics, things like that, and kind of espousing this philosophy that all of these executives should be giving up more of what they're producing, letting other companies compete with them, and that the pursuit of money, as they're describing it, is kind of the root of all evil in the country, right? And this is what's setting... Well, and I think this is just right tangent number one, but um, yeah. <laughs> I think that part of where this originates, though, and we see it today, too, like a lot of this does originate in politics and in academia. And if you think about those two worlds, they are fairly zero-sum. Like there's only a certain amount of Congress people. There are only a certain amount of professors who are tenured, right? And a lot of the way that you get those kinds of credentials, right, is through being a kiss ass or playing politics or kind of schmoozing with the right people. And so probably they've implicitly learned that, you know, people who are successful are really good at those skills. 
So then they see people in a, a different arena, the arena of business, where, you know, this is not always true, right? But in a perfect world, in a true capitalist society, business owners make money when they're offering something that people are voluntarily giving their money up for, for that service or for that good. And it's voluntary. And that's very different than the world of like academia, where you are handed from above a you know, tenure or for politics where, you know, you're getting one of a limited number of seats. Yeah, it's a very different world. But I'm wondering if there's a little bit of projection going on, right? That when they see somebody who's making, you know, a, in their view, like a ridiculous amount of money, they almost view that person as that person has to be evil to have gotten that kind of level because, you know, that's how people gain things. I wonder if there's some of that going on. I'm not sure. But as I was reading this, that was one thing I suspected. Yeah, well, I think that's part of what he is kind of railing against here, too, right, is that it's not really this like zero sum, you have to be taking it from someone else, right? To your point, politics and professorship is pretty zero sum. But again, you know, like we talked about in what the Sapiens episodes, I think, right, with the credit cycle, business is very non zero sum, right? Because a few people working together can literally create more wealth, which is how like, I mean, if you just look at the world, right, like the world has gotten so much richer versus like a thousand years ago, right? If it was zero sum, that's like not possible. <laughs> yeah. So creating wealth doesn't have to be an act of taking from people, right? It can be, you know, as Francisco is getting at here, it can be just the product of like creation, right? And then people valuing that creation, which he kind of says in the next part of the speech, he says money is made before it can be looted or mooched made by the effort of every honest man, each to the extent of his ability. An honest man is one who knows that he can't consume more than he has produced, right? This is, it's like a barometer of value almost, or it, it allows you to know that you are doing something valuable as he's getting at. Right. And I think there is an honest criticism here of like, you know, there are means of making money that are fairly non-value creating that are nefarious yep well not not even nefarious i mean i think like the easiest example is high frequency trading where you're literally just front running orders on stock exchanges and then like taking value from other people who are you know engaging with the stock market right like that is a you know people make absurd amounts of wealth doing that but they have not created any value for the world they've just yeah like pulled money out from other people's transactions Right. So that's almost like rent seeking in a way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's hardcore rent seeking. I, I think rent seeking is just like the perfect term to describe all these other ways of making money that wouldn't fit this metric. So this is idealized for sure. Right. Yeah. Like I would say Atlas Shrugged in general is an idealistic book of what capitalism like every time that, you know, any of these characters makes a speech in favor of, of capitalism. It is very much like in an ideal world, how capitalism could work. Right. It's not a description of how it necessarily does work in practice at to your point, right, of high frequency trading. But I will say, you're, you know, the thing he's saying here, like his main point, it, money as a barometer of doing something valuable is, you know, I think a really good way of thinking about it, in particular, if you're trying to start something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I mentioned this on the podcast before, but like one of the pieces of advice I give people when they're testing their idea is I actually say that you should ask your potential customer for money as soon as possible. Because you could be doing surveys and customer interviews and whatever for, you know, years and, you know, all the indications could say that, yeah, people really want this. But then as soon as you ask someone to exchange money, you know, for what you are offering, if they're saying no, there's probably something in what you're offering that is not actually as valuable as they're telling you it is. 
So it's kind of, I don't know, I find like that to be a very good barometer of how useful what you're offering actually is. So if they're willing to pay you for it and then how much. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's, I think with the startup space too, it's so many people get stuck just like working on things and never asking for any money. And people saying that they love the idea and they'll definitely use it when it comes out is not is not real validation, right? Real validation is like actually getting some like some to put their money on the line, right? That's how you know that you've actually created something worthwhile for them. Exactly. I mean, I think and you've done a good job of this too, where I've, I mean, well, the T project you're working on now, right? Like, I mean, you're charging for it. And then I think even like the book notes and, and all these things, right? It's like, you're not just like putting it online and being like, okay, yeah, people are visiting this page. I think that's like one thing, right? If they're visiting the page, they're paying for it with their attention. Right. So that's like a start. But then it's a whole nother thing if they're paying 50 bucks for it. Right. And I think, you know, that's like it shows it's even more valuable. They're actually willing to take out their credit card and pay for it. I mean, there's like a time cost there and an effort cost and a, and of course, the monetary cost. Yeah. Yeah. I think like just asking for money. And I think a lot of people, including I would say I fell in this camp for sure when I was doing my first company, I felt very awkward trying to charge people for stuff. Like I actually felt guilty about it. But then I don't know, I just I think over time, it just became like, you know, it was more of a way to cut through bullshit. When you start asking people for money, it's like you find out how serious they actually are. And it's not even about how serious they are. It's if what you're doing is even valuable in the first place. Agreed. And that's I think that's one part of what Cisco's saying in this speech. But the other part is, you know, why does he say that money is the root of all good? Right, which is kind of what he's arguing is that it's not the root of all evil, it's the root of all good. And I'll read this quotation from him where he says, Until and unless you discover that money is the root of all good, you ask for your own destruction. When money ceases to be the tool by which men deal with one another, then men become the tools of men. Blood, whips, and guns, or dollars. Take your choice. There is no other, and your time is running out. So, what money allows us to do is cooperate. Mm -hmm. Right. We really can't, I think, survive as a society without a store of value and means of exchanging it. I mean, really going back to the Sapiens episodes, right, when we invented agriculture, we needed property rights and some you know, way to measure value just to like not kill each other and steal our food all the time. Right. Or prevent these. Um, well, I guess these are another form of parasites or rent seekers. But in an agricultural society, probably these almost, you know, parasites who would hang around until harvest time and then just swoop in and take all the crops right. without having done the work over the, you know, the whole year to cultivate those crops. Yeah. And that's what he means here by blood, whips and guns or dollars. Right. Yep. You can either have a society that takes from people by force, right, or where people take from people by force or one where you exchange value and money and, you know, money and currency and all of that really is kind of one of the core means of us being able to work together on a large scale. Oh, well, I would say it's, it's the means yeah. for us to be able to cooperate on a large scale. I mean, I think there's other things too, right? Like trust and myths and all of that. Yep. But as you know, as for like inventions or means of cooperation, it is the most, I think, sustainable and universal. And it kind of like, it, it doesn't require you know, just like blind faith, right? There's something hard you can tie it to. Well, even trust though, right? Like, let's say, so like, I trust you, right? But let's say I was, you know, I was asking, or you were asking me to do some work for you and I trust you. So it's like, you know, I know you'll pay me, right? In a world where we have money. But if we didn't have money, 
and I didn't know in exchange for my labor, you were going to give me apples or you were going to give me like paper towels, right? Yeah. Like I would be like, well, and you know, what's the conversion rate of apples? To, you know, like it's so much harder to make work happen. And then that's only between two people. So imagine like on a society level, how you would make that work. That would be so hard without some type of common store of value. Yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of what Francisco's getting at here is that the only way we can have the kind of society we have is with money. And so even if there are going to be some of these rent seeking like consequences of money, it is sort of the root of everything that we see as good about the world that we live in. And I think taking it one small step back, I think when you do accept this premise that money is the root of all good, like it's the means of exchange and the means of us to cooperate. I think once you accept that, inequality actually becomes a lot easier to accept, as bad as that sounds, just because there is an inequality of ability, right? And there are going to be people who are better at cooperating or more cooperative than others or provide more value than others. And I think, you know, it becomes easier to accept that when you view money as the root of all evil, then it's like, well, the people who have it have more of it must be evil. Right. And there's no other like that's the logical conclusion. <laughs> if you start with that premise that money is the root of all evil. And if you start from the opposite premise, then it's like and of course, you know, again, we're talking about an idealized world where, you know, they're not talking so much about I would say the U.S. economy is not a capitalistic society. It's a mixed economy for sure. So there are, you know, definitely people who've gotten wealthy from non not necessarily from having an, <laughs> a service or good that people, you know, voluntarily would have exchanged their money for. But in general, right, it's like if you have an inequality of abilities, you, you know, you will have an inequality of money as well. Yeah, agreed. I think that mostly covers his speech. Yeah. Is there anything else on that that you think we should touch on? Uh, may, I think there was, I'm just trying to find it. There was a section on compulsion. Oh, that that's the next one. Yes, you're right. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, yeah, no, that's it for that one. Oh, well, actually, so there's there's one other piece in here from Cisco's speech that I think is worth touching on briefly, which is that he points out that the man who damns money has obtained it dishonorably and the man who respects it has earned it, right? So I feel like this might be why you you don't see that many like very successful people arguing strongly for socialism, right? Like people who are very successful in business, right? And in like money making matters. But you do see, you know, kids who grew up with wealthy parents arguing strongly right. for, you know, socialism and stuff like that, right? Like people who have not obtained money honorably, right, through like actual productive work are much more comfortable, you know, damning it and saying it's a source of evil. But, you know, Cisco's saying here, the person who respects it has earned it. And probably the converse, right? If you've earned it, then you're going to have more respect for it too. And I've actually heard this, um, I forget which artist was talking about this, but anyway, there was a rapper who was talking about how he used to believe in, not in socialism, but in more like effectively socialism, the way he described it. Yeah. <laughs> of just like he was saying like, oh, there should be like a max. But then he said the way someone described, like talked him out of that was um, they asked him if there should be a limit on the amount of money he can make off concerts. It was like, should there be a limit to the number of people who can come to your concert and a max to the amount that you can charge per ticket? And he was like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, if people want to come to my concert, why would I stop them from, like, if they want to pay for a ticket to my concert? And then he was like, ah, then it sunk in that it's like a voluntary thing. Like, I, basically, my music is valuable, which is why people are paying for it. Exactly. And I never understood that for why, like, some authors and 
you know, I always wondered if people are being disingenuous when people from, you know, I would say especially the artistic community push for like actors and things like that push for effectively communism or socialism. I always wonder if they're being disingenuous or if they actually believe that, because if you actually believe that, then you should not be, you know, making $50 million for acting in a movie, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or you should be distributing way more of it, right? It's like, yeah. you got to have some skin in the game if you really believe that stuff. Right. That's why I, part of me thinks that maybe they do it for like headline purposes or for like goodwill purposes. Yeah. I don't know. I'm never, I'm not, not quite sure. Yeah. Well, it's like the guy who runs effective altruism, I think. Okay. He lives on like $35,000 a year and gives all the rest of his money away. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's like that's skin in the game. Yep. He's committed to it. and He's actually doing it. But when you see these, I don't know, I, I always think of it like, so I went to a really snooty New England boarding school, right? And everyone, even if you didn't know that, you probably could tell from listening to this podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just like one look and you know that I went to a snooty New England boarding school. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, but I, I always thought it was strange, like, because there's, you know, there were honestly like really two types of kids there. The kids whose parents were like pretty wealthy and, you know, paid basically a college tuition to send their kids to high school. Right. And then there were kids who, you know, weren't and who got in on scholarship. Right. And it's like kind of like very different worlds. Right. Right. But the kids who were most adamant about like socialism and redistribution of wealth and stuff were usually the kids who grew up in rich families. Yeah, I have noticed that as well, even at CMU. Yeah, at CMU too. It's like something about people who, I don't know, it's like if you have it, but you never knew not having it, right? It gives you this like different perspective on it that the solution is to redistribute it. But it's kind of like, it's a very short term tweak. It's not a long term strategy, I think. Yeah, and it's never it's never like the immigrants who say that either. Yeah, exactly. It's like they don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they came here to work for a reason, right? Right. Like they want that opportunity. But I think like Tony Robbins made this point. I don't remember where he said it, but that if you like just took all of the income of the top 10% of earners in the US, it would pay for the government for maybe a year and then they would be back to being broke. Right. Or they'd be back to like losing yeah. money and like all of the top earners in the US would just be like, you know, they'd have nothing either. Right. It's like it's not a sustainable solution. Well, that's exactly right. And I think that's basically the point that this book is making. Right. <laughs> well, and I think that's actually I forget. I, maybe it was Tony Robbins, too. Uh, was this like a talk or, or a podcast interview he was on? Yeah, I can't remember where he was talking about. Was this. he on Tim Ferriss? He was on Tim Ferriss. I don't know if it was there, though. I think it had to do with the Money Master the Game book when that came out. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I'm thinking of. And I remember he had said, I think it was in the same interview, actually, because I remember what the point you just talked about, where he said, like, the, part of what makes this country great is like, we've figured out this mix of, you know, amount of money to tax where it's not so demotivating that all these ambitious people keep still being ambitious and working. And that actually is a better system than like Nat. Imagine if now there was a 90% tax on income above a hundred thousand dollars a year, I would be like, uh, well, one probably I would move. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would just be like, all right, we're going to Singapore. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> That'd be like number one. That's kind of what happened in this book, right? They just yeah. like all the productive people and everyone who we know who's productive, who makes over a hundred thousand or, you know, is on a trajectory to make over a hundred thousand and has the ability to move would basically be like, I'm, you know, peace, I'm out of here. Yeah. And that's kind of the point she's making in this book. And I think, you know, and then the country, as you said, is not even back to square one. It's way worse than square one. 
Yeah, because now at least square one where we are today, at least there are all these productive members of society who are contributing. And and yeah, OK, there's there's probably like bad blood on both sides, but at least people are contributing and people are still motivated to start things. And, you know, taxes aren't so high that you're like, you know, this isn't worth it. But if it got to like I've actually heard that proposal before, not over 100,000, I've heard over 500,000, mm-hmm. but of taxing at 90 percent above that. And it's like, well, why? Like, why would you work? In this country, yeah, you just leave, right? It's like that's yeah. the big criticism of I think the universal basic income stuff too is that if you know ten percent of people in the country are just paying for the other ninety percent to like hang out and watch Netflix, then yeah. <laughs> they're probably just going to leave, right? It's not going to be sustainable. Yeah, and also like I'm not I'm not saying it's like a um yeah okay well I guess maybe I am saying this <laughs> but I'm saying like yeah I kind of actually agree with that. I was gonna say it's not that like I'm saying oh like every dollar I earn is mine and like no one's helped me and like all this, right. We've gotten plenty of help along the way. You know, they're like, obviously there's a military, there's roads, there's all this stuff. And like, I do understand, you know, you do need to contribute, you know, there's definitely like, I understand that part and actually wholeheartedly agree with that. But then there's like a level where it becomes demotivating. Yeah. And I think that's the fine balance that I guess people have to realize when they're talking about taxing the rich, right. It's like a very easy thing to say, but a much harder thing to execute in a way that doesn't drive people off. And then we talked about this on the crypto episode and sovereign individual episode. But as uh, you know, cryptocurrencies, which obviously weren't around when this book was written, as uh, that becomes more and more viable, you know, people could probably get out of the US monetary system in a much easier way now than they could in 1950. Yeah. So it's like that balance becomes even more important to strike, right? Because you might not even have to physically move. Yeah, you could live here, but be, you know, the government would think that you're making no money. It'd be pretty easy to do that. You could do that right now, as long as you had some people who would agree to do it with you. Right. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah. Or if you had like a crypto economy where, you know, you were able to, well, is that what you, that's probably what you meant, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if, you know, you and I were, if we like started a Patreon for this podcast, but, you know, we did it on our own site and used like cryptocurrency donations, that would all be untraceable. Like, Right. If we pay taxes on it, it would be voluntary, like completely yeah. voluntary. Like I paid taxes on my crypto income for 2017, but that was entire, you know, like as far as I know, that was voluntary, right? Like I didn't have to. Yeah, there's really no way they can trace that. Yeah. And well, and I didn't even get clever with like the exchanges I used and stuff because I, I knew I was going to pay on them. But like I know people who, you know, are like they're just like, nope, not doing that. So, you know, and then but then they've done it in a way that like it's not like no one's going to find out, which is, you know, and I think that's increasingly going to happen more and more as the crypto. Well, it's our assumption, but I think that, you know, the crypto economy will continue to expand. I agree. It's time to buy, folks. Obviously, we're biased. We are biased. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we've got we have money in it. So our opinions are swayed by that. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's hop into this next speech because it's kind of related to what we were just talking about. Yeah. So that speech happens. uh, And then pretty soon after Hank, the character that Francisco is talking about is basically being put on trial by the government because so the government kind of decreed that you could only sell X amount of steel to any individual customer, right? Like there had to be a fair distribution of resources to all competitors around the country, right? Which is like kind of ridiculous because he <laughs> they, they make the point in the book. They said you could only sell 500 tons of steel per customer or something, which is enough for two miles of track for a railroad, right? And, <laughs> and then they can't do anything. So it's just like a completely absurd law. And so he's having to do these backroom deals to kind of sell it on the black market. And the government catches him 
and they put him on trial for kind of breaking these laws. And the trial is sort of meant to, uh, it seems like, kind of scare other industrialists into following these rules, right? Right. And making sure that, you know, they're not going against these government orders, the, you know, attempts to control the economy. And so Hank's on trial and he's giving this speech, which is really about um, the government's ability to compel people to do something. So I'll just read kind of from the beginning. If you choose to deal with men by means of compulsion, do so. But you will discover that you need the voluntary cooperation of your victims in many more ways than you can see at present. And your victims should discover that it is their own volition, which you cannot force, that makes you possible. I choose to be consistent, and I will obey you in the manner you demand. Whatever you wish me to do, I will do it at the point of a gun. If you sentence me to jail, you will have to send armed men to carry me there. I will not volunteer to move. If you find me, you will have to seize my property to collect the fine. I will not volunteer to pay it. If you believe that you have the right to force me, use your guns openly. I will not help you to disguise the nature of your action. Yeah, I think one thing in that section that really, you know, I think it really exposes it. And if you've never thought about it, it's quite an eye opening thought. I mean, I think for this really opened up, like I would say this was like a transformational speech when I read it for the first time, because it really exposed to me that like it's one thing to say the government. And I think we all use that term pretty regularly, but it really is you know, at the point of a gun. Yeah. And that is, I mean, every law, every rule, every regulation, the thing that is not quite apparent, you know, when people are talking about it, but it is apparent as soon as somebody tries to enforce it, is that, you know, every law has to be enforced through force. (laughs) Um, And that's basically what the government is. It's force that is then delegated by, well, in theory, the people. (laughs) Right. But it it all has to come back to this kind of threat of violence. Yeah, which was a big point in sovereign individual compulsion. Yeah, which was that like because I think in sovereign individual, right, they use the example of the government as uh, what is it like organized mafia? Yeah. What's the term? But yeah, like a mafia. Right. So they're kind of holding you hostage with these rules. And at the end of the day, right, if you don't follow them, they will put you in jail. Right. Or seize your wealth. Yeah. Or seize your wealth or something. Right. But, you know, going back to sapiens, all of these ideas are just, you know, intersubjective beliefs. Right. They're just made up thoughts that we're all agreeing to share. And most people, I think, I mean, also kind of like finite and infinite games. Right. I think a lot of people think of laws and rules as things they have to follow and not options that have consequences. Right. Right. I've found that that distinction like trips people up sometimes that a rule is just something that typically it is advantageous to follow. Right. Yeah. Or where a rule is unclear, there are you have a lot more leeway than you might think. Right. So, for example, like in the alcohol industry, all the different new business models that are out there, like with delivery and, you know, just every every new alcohol startup that has anything that is not to do with the actual liquid itself. All that stuff is like on the edges of the laws. But like until those laws are clarified. Right. There's like no issue around it. And the, the interesting thing, I believe this came up in Homo Deus, but by these companies actually doing this stuff, it actually influences how the law will be interpreted down the road. Oh, cool. Well, if you think about it, right, it's like if it's very clear that millions of people are using Drizzly and Minibar and other alcohol, you know, Fresh Direct and other alcohol delivery companies, like the odds that regulators around the country are just going to be like, nope, sorry, are pretty low because every transaction drives more tax revenue too. Right. Because there's an alcohol tax on at retail, right? So 
it's just like, do you really want to shut down this thing? But the it, the thing is, though, right, like people who believe in, you know, unless it's explicitly clear, you're not going to do it. If you believe that, then none of these companies would have ever been started, right? Because it wasn't explicitly clear that these things were allowed. But as you're saying, right, it's like a little bit, the border is a little bit fuzzier than you're led to believe. Yeah. And even, I mean, even when there is a hard border, right? Yeah. Like ultimately, it's not that you can't do that, obviously, right? Obviously you can, there's just a cost to it. And right. the question is always, you know, is the cost worth it? And that's kind of, you know, what I think Hank is getting at here in part is he's saying like, like, I know that I'm breaking the law and I know what the consequences are, but you are, I'm not going to help you enforce them, right? Like if you're truly going to punish this behavior, then punish it, but I'm not going to play along, right? It's kind of like how Airbnb's approach, if you really think about it, right? It's like Airbnb can be shut down. Like if you think about it, there are like, so New York, right? Airbnb is technically, especially for short-term listings, not allowed. But mm -hmm. it's not that hard for a regulator to go onto Airbnb and just see what short-term listings are out there. Yeah. They have the addresses. <laughs> like it's not that hard. Well, I mean, this is, it's probably part of why Airbnb hides the addresses until you book a place, right? So I'm saying though, if you had a, if you had any kind of budget, like if they were serious about actually shutting this down, like you just book them and then you get the address and then go in, but you'd have to go in with, again, armed people, right? To like truly shut this down and, you know, police basically. Or you just subpoena everyone who's listed as a host on Airbnb in New York, right? That's true too, right? But it's yeah. but I think going back to his speech here, right? It's kind of it would expose the ludicrousness of that rule, yeah, in the first place, right? Like it would just like imagine. I mean, think about how many listings are out there, right? I mean, you'd have like an army of police people, like instead of enforcing real crime, enforcing people renting out their apartments, like. <laughs> like how absurd would that be? And imagine if there was like even one murder that day, like the press would have a field day with that. It would be like, while you're police, while NYPD was busy shutting down Airbnb listings, like these stores got robbed and yep. these people died, right? Like, I mean, it would just not go over well. And they know that. That's why they don't do that kind of thing. I think like Uber probably took a similar approach uh, with yeah. what they did. It was like, we're just going to kind of break the rules and assume that people won't get too uh, hung up on it. Yeah. And, you know, some cities like Austin, I guess, you know, they took a harder stand and, you know, but I think. Again, it was like across the board, it just wasn't at some point, it wasn't even worth fighting them. It was like, okay, you know, this, yes, it's against the rules, but let's just rewrite the rules to make it more possible. Yeah. Because this is absurd. If we have to use force to shut down people driving other people around using their own cars. Yeah, exactly. But I think he, he does expose the absurdity in this, in this speech. Well, not the absurdity, but I guess the bargain that is made when someone flouts a, or I guess ignores a rule. That, you know, you, as you said, there is a consequence, but then you can almost challenge the authority to actually enforce it the way they say they're going to enforce it. Right. You can call their bluff on it a bit. Exactly. See what they actually do. Not advised with the IRS, though. <laughs> no, no, they will. They will take. <laughs> they will bluff. call your bluff. They will call your bluff. <laughs> <laughs> OK. All right. I think we just hop into the, the big one here. Yeah. Yeah, there were a couple other good sections in that, but we got the point across. Yeah. Well, was there anything else on it you wanted to bring up? Uh, I mean, there was a section, but it goes back to, again, the voluntary exchange thing. Okay. So the section where it says, no, I do not want my attitude to be misunderstood. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we kind of talked about that with the voluntary exchange section. Yeah, because that, that's what's kind of funny about it is that the judges are trying to say, like, oh, you don't want us to think that you're being like disruptive or misbehaving and he's basically saying like no i do want you to <laughs> <laughs> that's very clearly what i am doing yeah 
not going to kind of play along and behave well to make you guys look good, right? If you're going to yeah. actually enforce these rules, then you're going to have to seriously enforce them. Exactly. So I guess we should hop into the big one here. Yeah. So I don't know how much should we reveal about the plot? I I don't think this is actually that big of a reveal. It's pretty obvious this is going to happen at some point. Yeah. As you start reading. So, I mean, in some ways, the main character of the book, you know, some people will say it's Dagny, who is the woman really running the main railroad in the book. But you could also make an argument that the main character in the book is John Galt, who doesn't actually show up until you're about 700 pages in. But throughout the beginning of the book, I mean, throughout the whole book, there's this expression that people use where they say, you know, who is John Galt, which is like, what's the point? What does it matter? It's just like a colloquial phrase that's come up and they you find out where that phrase came from at some point in the book. We won't spoil it. But, you know, John Galt ends up being the reason that people are disappearing. He's been kind of like getting these industrial leaders to leave their jobs and, you know, go with him, right? It'd be kind of like if, you know, Peter Thiel or someone moved to Singapore and then came back to the U.S. and was like getting all of these other, you know, tech and business industrial executives to like shut down their businesses and go to Singapore with him, right? It's kind of like that idea. Yeah. So, you know, kind of towards the end of the book, when the world is really just like starting to burn from everyone leaving, John Galt kind of like appears and comes on. He like hijacks a radio show that was going to be given by a government official talking about, you know, like the state of the country when it's in this like horrible crisis. And John Galt hijacks the radio show and gives this speech. And it's sort of meant to rally who is left kind of of society against the government that's trying to, you know, really just like destroy destroy capitalism effectively. Yeah. And I think this does give away the time period a bit because the fact that people listen to this long, long speech on the radio. Yeah. Is, right. I think that's like today that would be tough. I mean, it's literally a three hour speech. There aren't too many of you guys who listen to three hours of audio. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it's made you think. Unless it's made you think. I mean, it's it's actually crazy. I, There's a lot of three hour audio shows. The first time I read it, I listened to some of it on audiobook particularly this part, and it did actually take three hours to listen to it. Oh, wow. So it's long, but it's like a book. It's like a small book. It's like a small book in it. It's kind of like, you know, in the middle of 1984, he finds that book about like the government and stuff and he reads it. But that book is, you know, 10 pages within a 150 page book. This is a hundred page speech within a 1200 page book. So yeah, exactly. (laughs) But it's really interesting, though. It is really interesting. I heard this is uh, well, I heard I read online that this is basically her layout of objectivism right yeah that's like what this section is yeah so objectivism is sort of the name for ayn rand's philosophy yep i didn't know she originated but i guess she did i saw that online as i was prepping for this well it's sort of an adaptation of aristotelian ethics and metaphysics i guess um but primarily the ethics right like the whole a is a thing that kind of comes from aristotle Mm. as like sort of the originator of logic And then objectivism is kind of like a moral and economic take on it, probably in response to both socialism and postmodernism, because we we didn't get to it too much in the speeches so far. But there is this like strong postmodernist sense throughout the book or postmodernist vein from some of the characters and like most of the antagonists, right, arguing that, well, you know, nothing is certain. And, you know, who are you to say what's right and wrong? And like, 
you know, how do you know that's true? And it's just like very, you know, nothing is true. Everything is subjective style arguments. But her philosophy and objectivism really kind of rails against that pretty strongly. So obviously we can't read through the whole speech, <laughs> but there, I mean, there's a lot of like good ideas in here that we can jump off on. Right. So well, I think the ASA thing is a pretty good starting point, actually. Yeah. So this comes up a few times in the book, but he expounds on it the most, right? That like A, and so I'll read from his speech, A is A, a thing is itself. You have never grasped the meaning of the statement and I'm here to complete it. Existence is identity. Consciousness is identification. A is A, or if you wish it stated in simpler language, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. And it's kind of like hard to grok exactly what he's getting at with this, but it seems to just sort of be a statement that, you know, something can't be like both at once. Like you can't really have contradictions, right? So going back to Cisco's speech, like money can't be evil and be all of this source of good, right? It can only be like itself. Yeah, I took it even simpler. So the especially the first part, the existence is identity part. I think mm -hmm. the thing that she might be railing against here is this like postmodernist idea of everything is subjective. Hmm. I think she's saying, at least this is how I took it the second time I read it. I think I took it differently the first time. But this time I took it like when you say A is A, it's like there is an objective reality and it's not fully subjective. It's not fully based on the idea of like who's looking at it. It's also just like this thing is a thing. Yeah. It's hard to put into words, but because I think the argument she's railing against here, or I guess he is railing against here, is this idea that there is nothing based in reality and that it, everything is just, you know, fluid and subjective to who's who's looking at it, which of course there is, you know, on one hand, you can see why that is a seductive argument. But I think what is being said here is that like there is an objective reality. And she actually, or he, yeah, it's kind of confusing whether we attribute this to her or him. Right. Yeah. I keep making that same mistake. But later on in the speech, he has this point about virtue and vice, which I think helps expand on the A is A, where he says that thinking is man's only basic virtue from which all others proceed. And his basic vice, the source of all his evils, is that nameless act which all of you practice but struggle never to admit, the act of blanking out, the willful suspension of one's consciousness, the refusal to think, not blindness, but the refusal to see, not ignorance, but the refusal to know. It is the act of unfocusing your mind and inducing an inner fog to escape the responsibility of judgment on the unstated premise that a thing will not exist if only you refuse to identify it that A will not be A so long as you do not pronounce the verdict, it is. And that's, I think, where some of this A is A idea comes from, just that you can't pretend something isn't what it is just through like philosophy or like trying to ignore it, trying to kind of like hide your head in the sand, right? That's not going to change reality. Reality is still going to be reality. Yeah, that's exactly how I took that as well. And so he starts with kind of the a is A and then goes on to talk about like the purpose or kind of I guess the meaning of life, right? Right. Is sort of what he's getting at. And he says that to live, man must hold three things as supreme and ruling values of his life. Reason, purpose, self-esteem. Reason as his only tool of knowledge. Purpose as his choice of the happiness which that tool must proceed to achieve. Self-esteem as his voluntary certainty that his mind is competent to think and his person is worthy of happiness which means is worthy of living. And he kind of expands on that to say that work is the purpose of your life. And, you know, he says you must speed past any killer who assumes the right to stop you. 
right? That where you really find a value and meaning in your life is through your work and your kind of productive achievements and what you decide to put your energy and your thought towards. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I took that as well. And I think initially that might, you know, repulse some people, but if we think about it and I think this, I think this has come up on NetChat actually in the past is like why one reason why people are so unhappy is like the work that they're doing is where, I mean, when you spend most of your time with work, right? Like just how you spend most of your waking hours. So if you're not, you know, if that is not purposeful, it's hard to be satisfied. Right. And to be clear, it's not that any work is the meaning of life. Exactly. And I think that's where people take issue with this, right? Because somebody says like, oh, you know, that person like works so hard, he should stop working so hard. And so, like that's really only bad if you don't like the work that you're doing, right? And if it's, you know, being destructive on the rest of your life, if you're working some horrible finance job where you have to be there 12 hours a day and you're kind of like getting shat on and you're miserable, then yeah, that's really bad. And that shouldn't be the meaning of your life. But if you really, you know, love what you're doing and you have fun with it and you get excited about it when you wake up, it's not bad to do that. Right. And actually, you should do more of that. And that's where you kind of get a lot of this meaning. And it's kind of like Harari's concern with universal basic income, too, is that if you have this massive useless class that can't productively contribute to society, like how are they going to find some of that meaning? Right. Exactly. And then that part is missing. And it doesn't even matter that you've paid for their food and shelter and all that stuff. That's like, you know, only one part of living, but the purpose part is not there. And I mean, that came up in sovereign individual, too, of what that can cause. Yeah. There's a lot of corollaries to sovereign individual, actually. I never I didn't pick up on that. So we started talking about this. Well, sovereign individual is very much a kind of like Randian book. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very Randian. I mean, they're basically talking about a like Atlas shrugged influenced world. Right. Right. Like it feels very similar that um, and, and I think this is why this book is kind of poignant now is that, you know, we're in a time when we could actually see something like this happen, right? Where in response to new technologies, the government tries to move in a more socialist direction, and then the really productive people just go somewhere else, right? That's not really a hard future to imagine. Right. Yeah. And the tool, the the means of doing that are all there already. Exactly. You almost just need like the spark, which would be, you know, more socialist government. Yeah. And somebody somebody leading the charge who could get other people to go too. right. Well, I was thinking like the first spark might be like, you know, if let's say like a more socialist leaning candidate became president and then, you know, the socialist wing of the Democratic Party, you know, the very left wing side started dominating that party and then they dominated Congress. Right. Like that might be the spark that leads someone to or as you're saying, like organize this exodus. Yeah. It's really interesting because like the tools are all there. It's just there's no reason to do it yet. But if it ever came to that, like I bet somebody could organize that. Yeah, I can't imagine it would be too hard to get other people to go with you, especially since a lot of those types of people have probably read this book. Right, exactly. <laughs> and they'd be like, all right, yeah, here we go. Let's do it. Well, this and maybe Sovereign Individual as well. And Sovereign Individual. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's well, funny, I mean, it is interesting how important, I guess, like cryptocurrency is to that idea, right? Mm, yeah, because it's basically the in many ways, it is the new gold, right? I mean, one of the themes in this book is that fiat currency is kind of worthless, and we should be using gold, which, you know, it doesn't really work that well anymore, because there's just not enough gold to and like gold is really inconvenient for like 
breaking up into divisible units for trade, right? But the the argument is that money and store of value should be in something that's not controlled by a government, right? That's not their job. And so gold is a bad medium for doing that. But crypto is excellent, right? I mean, it's much better than a fiat currency. And that as long as people continue to agree on the value of it, it's like much better than trusting a central bank. Right. Yeah. Well, decentralized again, decentralized over centralized. Exactly. 20th through the speech. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I mean, the nice thing is that a lot of it was, you know, is covered in other things we've talked about before. Yes, definitely. So, I, I mean, I think that he's got this funny section on kind of postmodernist thought where he says that if you walk into any college classroom, you will hear professors teaching your children that man can be certain of nothing, that his consciousness has no validity, whatever that he can learn no facts and no laws of existence, that he's incapable of knowing an objective reality. What then is his standard of knowledge and truth? Whatever others believe is their answer. There is no knowledge they teach. There's only faith. Your belief that you exist is an act of faith, no more valid than another's faith in his right to kill. And he kind of is saying here that, you know, in stating any of this, they're obviously contradicting themselves, right? Because the minute you open your mouth, then you are saying that there is something objective, right? You you can't like use words and expect other people to understand them unless you have this deeper belief that there is some meaning there, right? That there is an objective reality that we can at least interpret the world through. So he's basically, he, he says at some point in the speech, I don't know if we have it in here, that the only solution, if you truly believe that, is to just keep your mouth shut and die, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you really can't do anything else. Right. Well, and he does say that, uh, I think when he's talking about the mystics, right, like how the their sort of ultimate ideal is really death, right, is really what they're describing. Right. Well, which is exactly what you said, like, if, you know, not saying anything and dying is kind of the only way to truly fulfill the argument that's being brought up there. Yeah. But I think this is skipping ahead slightly. But, you know, I do also like like the part where they brought up I believe it was in the speech where uh, the proper use of government. I thought that was pretty interesting, too. Yeah, well, I think it relates really strongly to sapiens, too, which was. The, so I'll just read from the speech. It says the only proper purpose of a government is to protect man's rights, which means to protect him from physical violence. A proper government is only a policeman acting as an agent of man's self-defense and as such may resort to force only against those who start the use of force. I think that relates. Well, one, I think it makes a lot of sense. Because you're preventing against bad actors, basically, is what that purpose is. And then the the thing that relates to sapiens is like this becomes necessary as a result of property. Right. Yeah. And if you're interested more in how that originated, you can go to the sapiens episode. Well, and again, it's also a very strong theme in sovereign individual. Yes. That as nation states break up, the only thing that they will still have a, you know, justified monopoly over is protection, right? That. We do want some amount of protection to, you know, allow us to continue operating in, you know, the U.S. as we are and that we won't be invaded by, you know, Al-Qaeda, right? Or ISIS, like whatever the new acronym is. That's still going to be important, but we don't need government to control how we do commerce with each other, right? Yeah, it is. You know, I think there are good criticisms of this. You know, one difficult one is like roads and highways, right? Like I don't really know what a good capitalist style solution to that is. Because if you had a bunch of companies competing to do the roads, 
right? I don't know that we would get a good result from that, like a better result than a central planner. You know what I mean? Right. Or even like imagine if you have to voluntarily contribute to build a road. Yeah. You might have the bystander effect kind of thing, right? Where everyone thinks everyone else is going to do it. Well, I mean, I would be fine with being charged based on road usage, right? A toll, basically. Yeah. And I mean, again, getting back into crypto stuff, right? It'd be really easy to build, you know, a GPS and auto deducting like, you know, crypto fee into every car where you're paying, you know, fractions of a penny for every mile you travel. And then that's going to whatever company manages the roads. I think the problem is when you can compete for roads, I don't know if we get like a better road system out of that. Right. Right. Or public parks, too. Right. I mean, I guess you could just, again, microtransactions charge people for using the parks instead of them paying taxes to, um, you know, that actually might be better because like the government agencies are just so horribly inefficient. Right. That's like one actual good argument for like basic income, actually, too, is just like if you replace welfare with basic income, then it's like the additional amount that you would pay out to all the people who are getting it, who wouldn't get it under welfare might actually still be less than all the administrative costs that go into administrating benefits. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. And all the fraud that already exists, right? In the system. It's not like not saying like it's all fraudulent, right, at all, but there is fraud. And then of course all the administrative costs that go into it. Like you have whole departments to manage these things. Whereas if everybody just got a check, you wouldn't really need much administration for that. Yeah. It would be interesting as a way to do like parks, right? It the challenge would be you'd have to have a way to track and charge kind of everyone who enters the park while keeping out people who aren't paying to use it. Well, if Amazon can build their store that doesn't have a checkout line, maybe there's something something to that. But it still has walls, right? Like it still requires you to have an Amazon account, right? It's it's close, but I don't really know how you would stop someone from just like running into the park. Right. Unless you're going to have, you know, like guards (laughs) at your park. Right. Well, actually, maybe you want guards at your park anyway, right? Like safety. But yeah, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting idea, right? But I don't know. I mean, like if parks were competing for customers, then you can imagine they would probably be cleaner and like better maintained and water fountains and bathrooms and stuff like that. Right. Like, I, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting thought experiment. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if a society's ever tried that. That's one. Maybe if somebody's seen that, you know, maybe there's a there's an experiment that's been done somewhere. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like closed private yeah private like clubs and stuff yeah yeah i guess the trick is can you do it publicly with and i think we've only had the ability to do microtransactions like that pretty recently right i mean the technology is not even really there right now for the manifestation we're talking about but i do like this idea of you know over time government becomes less and less necessary to do these other things and so it just keeps scaling back towards protection right like 40 years ago, we would say that we need the government to organize something like NASA, right? But now we have SpaceX and they've done a much better job. So, right. Well, and that's a really good example, right? Of where private industry is doing it for, um, I forget the exact number, but it's a fraction of the cost, right? Per launch. Yeah, it's like one tenth the price. I mean, that's a massive difference. Yeah, although, I guess to be fair, I think that that's like one tenth the price of. Was it the military or it was also like Boeing and some of those other companies too that they're competing with? But I mean, either way, right, it's like much cheaper than what the government was doing. And so there are probably other things like that that can move into more of the private sector as I guess as the technology gets good enough for those large scale projects to be done privately. 
private sector or even i mean imagine this this might be going too deep into the crypto side but like imagine more of just a decentralized approach to a lot of these types of programs there could be i mean i'm almost imagining like you could even let's say you had social security you might not need a government department to manage that like there might just be a way that okay well you know like like there might just be a better way to, to do it via a decentralized approach instead of having a central administration for these things yeah, that would be interesting. Like via automated contracts or something. Right. Like, would there be a way to because Social Security works by force, <laughs> right? Like, well, that's a great point. Yeah, it doesn't work <laughs> without force, right? Because then otherwise you would just not pay into it for 40 years and then you'd sign up when you're 60 and be like, yay, free money. Right. Right. Exactly. It only works by threat of obligation. I mean, we already have decentralized social security and it's called like a 401k. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, I've heard this joke made before of like the last entity you would want to manage your retirement account is the government. Oh, yeah. But you got to have to with social security. That's like, well, one form of retirement account, <laughs> which is like, I don't know. I mean, I I really don't like that kind of, you know, it, like it's almost insulting to me that the government thinks that I can't like plan for my retirement. But then I also know how few people do, right? And then they end up like really needing those checks. And then it's sort of this, like, you don't want old people dying in the street, right? But it's also a horribly inefficient system. The more efficient system would be if everyone, you know, just deposited the amount that they're paying in social security tax into like an IRA or something and then let that grow and then, you know, cashed out later. But people don't do that. But now right? you're also assuming that Social Security is not a legalized Ponzi scheme, which is what it is. Oh, which <laughs> right? it absolutely is, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it would that would make total sense, though, if it was actually an account that they were setting up on your behalf, then it would be like, well, why do we need this? We should just deposit it in IRA. And like, honestly, like you don't even need to touch it till you're 65 and you're going to be way better off. Well, yeah. I mean, if that's what it actually was, too, then you should be able to send in like an IRA receipt and get out of your social security obligation, right? Right. Because if I can prove that I'm, you know, putting $500 a month into a retirement savings account, then they don't need to like nanny me, right? But again, that's sort of like not what it is. I believe Ron Paul had a, a suggestion like maybe a long time, maybe it was like when he was running in 2012. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing something about this where he was saying that you should be allowed to Effect, and there, there is a flaw in this argument, which I'll, I'll bring up after. But the proposal was there's like two tiers of Social Security. There's the one that we currently have. And then there's one where if you can prove you have a certain amount of assets or I think your suggestion is even better, like you show that you are doing this on your own, you're subject to a much lower rate. So maybe instead of 7.5%, it's like 2%. And it's just a tax, basically. Like right. it's not a there, there's no pretending that it's for your retirement. But you could basically get that lower rate by showing you know that you're doing this already or you already have enough assets now the flaw was there would be well i don't even know if it's a flaw let's say the criticism was that people would do everything they could to just get exempted and then you'd have a bunch of poor old people later who are like okay now i need government help because i exempted myself but i actually do need help now and then the government would be in this tight spot of you either have old people dying in the streets or you help them and that kind of defeats the whole purpose of the system well it's also probably a problem because i imagine the top 100,000 people, right, or top million people are paying in 90% of what's going out of Social Security right now, right? Well, okay, so Social Security is a weird one, because it's capped. And I believe the highest income that you pay it on, I believe it's I'm going to check right now. Let's see Social Security cap 2018. Yeah, so workers contribute 6.2% of their earnings to Social Security until their income exceeds 
$128,700. So you don't pay anything on top of that. Got it. Okay. Well, I didn't know that, but that's good to know. Yeah. So basically you pay up to that point. Like if it was, if there was no cap, which I think some people have pushed for, then your thing makes total sense, right? Because it's just going to be power law distribution where the top earners are paying effectively all of it or most of it. But in this case, there is a cap. So yeah, I think people like this one is a little more um, evenly distributed than like regular taxes are. Got it. Oh, so the tangent I was going to go on <laughs> was related to Atlas Shrugged, but I've heard this criticism of Atlas Shrugged before mm-hmm. where the book is, what's that test called? The one where you see what, like, it's almost a test of your psychology, like what you, it's like the inkblot test or something. Like a Rorschach test? Yeah, yep, exactly. So yeah, I've heard that criticism leveled at Atlas Shrugged where it's not a very convincing novel if you already believe the opposite thing and it's a super like I guess confirmation bias inducing novel. Yeah. If you already believe in these kinds of things. What are your thoughts on that? Because I was thinking about that as I was reading the book. I don't know. I would disagree because and maybe it could just be that I never thought about this stuff very much. But, you know, I grew up or I was raised very liberal. And I think this book made me much more like fiscally conservative. Right. Mm -hmm. Just because I found the arguments very convincing. But I also don't know if that's just because I'd never really come across a good, you know, compelling argument in favor of fiscal conservatism, right? Yeah. Because I mean, I read it pretty young. Right. You read it in high school, which is really interesting because I I don't know how I would have reacted if I read it in high school. Yeah. But I I definitely had my mind swayed quite a bit by it. So I don't think I'd agree with that criticism. Got it. Yeah. I was going to say that, like, I definitely had tendencies towards some of these ideas before I read the book. Mm-hmm. But what I found it to be really helpful for was making me not feel guilty about those ideas. Yeah. So like, cause I just, you know, like pop culture and most things, especially that we read in college and high school are just not like very pro capitalism. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's also kind of a function of university, right? Mm, yeah. It's like something, it, you know, university is fairly like postmodernist, neoliberal, like socialist influence, especially in the humanities. Um, there's very few like conservative humanities professors and researchers, right? And it's almost, it's almost like not allowed. It's, this is one thing I have seen some of these like kind of intellectual dark web types talk about is that it's hard to get research grants and approval for stuff that's not like kind of liberal conforming. Right. Yeah. I've heard that as well. Yeah. I, I feel like that's part of what definitely makes this book appealing to some people for some of the reasons we've talked about on the show before that if you outlaw a group of ideas as being like, you know, taboo and not allowed to be talked about, right? If you're telling kids that like, oh, you know, it's bad to want to make money, and then they read a compelling argument that it's not bad, it like gets more exciting, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. this sort of forbidden knowledge that you're not supposed to talk about, and that makes it even more attractive. Right, exactly. That's kind of the the criticism, uh, or I mean, a very good criticism against all of this, like silencing of you know, even stupid stuff like gender differences, right? That if you try to convince people that, you know, men and women are biologically the same, and then, you know, obviously they realize like, wait, that's not true, then it's really easy for them to like swing completely in the opposite direction, right? And become like, alt-right, hyper-conservative, all of that. Well, yeah, well, there's probably also this feeling of like, once you confirm that, oh, wait, actually men and women are different, you're like, well, what else have they been lying to me about? Exactly. Yeah. And then it's much easier to get swayed by stuff like, you know, 
the liberals are holding like secret occult rituals in a pizza shop in DC, right? It's like, well, I mean, you told me the men and women are biologically the same. So how do I know you're not lying about the pizza thing too? Right. (laughs) It's a kind of extreme example, but you can see how it's just like not helpful to, I think, forbid talking about stuff. I was thinking about this, like the Voldemort effect, (laughs) right? Oh yeah. He gets more power. Yeah. Well, he gets more power, but it's also the, by not talking about this person, you are like, well, I remember at least in the, sorry for people who haven't read Harry Potter, but it's been out for a long time. So if you haven't read it by now or watched the movies, you're probably not going to watch them. Um, but uh, like, I remember the first few books, right? It was like everyone was effectively deluding themselves to the fact that he was still, he had returned or he was still there. And they were doing that by not speaking his name, right? They were like, yo, you can't say his name, but it's like, okay, if he's not there, then like, why are we censoring this from ourselves? Right. And it's, I feel that way with some of these, like, gender difference things it's like if you're not allowed to talk about them but then you're also claiming that they don't exist it's like well which one is it (laughs) right right you kind of can't really have it both ways like if if you were allowed to do the research and not allowed to talk about it that would be weird but if you're not allowed to do the research and you're not allowed to talk about it or you're discouraged from talking about it it's you know it's kind of like it's kind of like you're trying to push both things at the same time it's a contradictory views yeah you're saying a is not a you're refusing to look at i mean it, it actually is sort of what Galt's saying earlier in the speech that you're pretending that by not looking at the truth, it will cease to exist, right? But that's not really how the world works. You're hoping that that's how it works. Yeah, it's like it's like the ostrich. So it's like sticking your head in the sand or something, right? And like hoping that the threat is not there <laughs> or whatever you're viewing is threat, not actually there. Exactly. Interesting. Did you ever dive into objectivism in college at all or high school? Like I never did, but I knew there was like a group on campus and but I never really got too much into it. I'm curious what other reading recommendations there are, or is it just other Ayn Rand books? It's really just other Rand books. And there's a few things too by this guy, Nathaniel Brandon, I think. So he was like kind of her understudy and wrote some other like philosophical stuff related to objectivism. Uh, interestingly enough, Nathaniel Brandon was also Ayn Rand's lover. And interesting, <laughs> he was cheating on his wife with her and his wife knew and was cool with it. Interesting. Is that a relationship then? Something like that. Or maybe she was just cool with it because it was Ayn Rand. I don't know. But <laughs> and then his wife wrote Ayn's biography. Oh, wow. It's like a very strange relationship. So Nathaniel Brandon, Leonard Pakoff is the other one who's written some stuff related to objectivism. Uh, I read a decent amount of it. I mean, after I read Atlas Shrugged, I really went down the Ayn Rand rabbit hole for a bit. I've read almost all of her books, actually, including the nonfiction ones. So, oh, wow. I haven't actually read any of her other books. I I started The Fountainhead at one point and then I think I like lost the book or something. (laughs) and I never (laughs) picked it back up. But I've heard it's really good. I mean, my mom really likes it. And I think you mentioned it's pretty good. But it's a it was a precursor to Atlas Shrugged. Yeah. So Fountainhead is basically like Atlas Shrugged Light, right, where it's an extremely similar premise of, you know, creative industrialist people not being appreciated and, you know, kind of rebelling. But the the scope is much smaller in that it's it's really just like three main characters, whereas Atlas Shrugged is like 12 or 15. And you're really just following two characters development, whereas in Atlas Shrugged, you're following like five or six. Got it. Yeah, I think, you know, Fountainhead was the precursor, and then she really expanded on the ideas to write Atlas Shrugged. So I found reading Fountainhead after Atlas a little disappointing because it just felt mm. it felt like the light version, right? The, the characters are still good and it's still interesting, 
but it didn't feel as like, you know, just massive in scope and imagination. So I think there's one other thing that I, I just find kind of interesting with Ayn Rand too, that I don't know how much there is to say about it, but she simultaneously has extremely strong female characters, but also a very traditional view of male female relationships, which. Yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, I just found like kind of interesting to read in the book because it's you can't call her sexist, right? She well, her main character is a female executive. Yeah, in both books, her main yeah. characters are female executives, like extremely high powered, extremely impressive women. But then they also have this kind of strong, submissive, like feminine subservience side to them with their like male lovers throughout the book. And it's just it's an interesting contrast because I feel like I don't know. It's like I feel like if it were being written today, you wouldn't have that contrast from most writers or you wouldn't have both sides from most writers. They would have to be a foil for each other, right? Like you'd have the high powered independent woman who, you know, like don't need no man is kind of like not She's very masculine. almost. Yeah, very masculine, like not uh, not, you know, feminine and, you know, submissive in like a sexual way, right? Not like dominant, like not BDSM submissive, but like, you know, you get no, I, I got I got that same sense. Yeah, I got right. the same sense from reading it. It's a contradiction. Yeah, you'd have like the hyper feminine character, but who also is not like, you know, doing men's jobs, right? Or, like, you know, what were men's jobs? But, you know, I'm kind of like blends them. It, it's in one character. And I don't know. It's just it's interesting to read. I wonder if that's autobiographical, though, too, in some ways. It must be. It most likely is. Right. Because, I mean, she is obviously a very high powered or, you know, was a very high powered woman being who she was and you know she effectively led whatever you want to call it a school of philosophy or a cult i guess depending on your point of view <laughs> yeah but i mean she was the leader of that. and one of the first women to ever do that was there one even before her i can't even think of another one in the 20th century simone beauvoir i think would be up there okay but i don't think she ever created her own entire school of thought um but she was hanging out with that whole group in france yeah but i mean really yeah i mean you can count on one hand right the number of women philosophers kind of at this level. So I'm guessing she was a very sort of like high powered, highly competent uh, individual, or at least that's how she viewed herself for sure. But I wonder if she also had maybe this attraction to the strong man kind of if you. Yeah, not the strong man. That's not the right word. What's the right word for the, it? The, the like masculine man, right? Like, you know, the yeah, traditionally masculine, like kind of strength, right? Right. Because it's I mean, so this is the other thing. The sex in this book is great. <laughs> like all of the sex scenes are excellent that's, that's probably some and of her expert, like you could say that because you've, written, <laughs> you've literally written the book on it so exactly but it, it's like i think it's actually some of her better writing it's like the speeches and the sex scenes and the like descriptions of scenery and stuff are like some of the better written parts of the book okay here's a like interesting tangent question for you Okay. Do you think that th this is I'll give you my opinion first. I'm curious to hear it. Like, I think that the the way she wrote the sex scenes are only like you can only write it that way as a well, maybe not only, but most you see that more often with female writers. And I really liked it. I really liked how she she wrote them. They were, you know, like I've definitely seen with male writers, maybe not all male writers, but sometimes the scenes are not quite as descriptive as how she did it. But like she used I mean, I would say some of her best writing was in the sex scenes. Yeah, no, I'd agree. Because it's really focused on the emotional, psychological elements of it and not on the 
like mere physical elements. Well, and again, and that's like the, the interesting thing is like, obviously a book is not going to get the physical. I mean, it's, it, can, it has and it can, but I'm saying a like it's harder to get that across in text, mm-hmm. um, the physical side of it. But the emotional side of it, I guess, with the right language, you know, you can really get it across, which I think she did. Yeah, no, I'd agree. But yeah, I think that 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 side of the book is so interesting, too, because it's also like, you know, Dagny goes through multiple partners in the course of the book, too. Right, right. I think Ayn Rand was a hardcore atheist. Yeah. So that probably, I mean, I'm guessing like, I wonder if part of this was like almost a rebuke to Christianity of like, I believe it. Well, and I think also, I mean, we didn't get into it too much, but there is a lot of philosophy in here on love. And a lot of the philosophy on love, I think, is like pretty compelling and pretty interesting. And I mean, I'll just see if I can find something quickly here. But like seeing that played out in her relationships with some of the male characters in the book, too was pretty interesting. So I think this is not from Galt's speech. This is from another part of the book. So here, I'll I'll just read. uh, And I'm actually not entirely sure where this is from, but I'll just read it. Uh, Love is our response to our highest values and can be nothing else. Let a man corrupt his values and his view of existence. Let him profess that love is not self-enjoyment, but self-denial. That virtue consists not of pride, but of pity or pain or weakness or sacrifice. That the noblest love is born, not of admiration, but of charity, not in response to values, but in response to flaws, and he will have cut himself in two. And then going back up a bit, uh, the man who is proudly certain of his own value will want the highest type of woman he can find, the woman he admires, the strongest, the hardest to conquer, because only the possession of a heroine will give him the sense of achievement, not the possession of a brainless slut. It's very strong. Uh, It's a very strong way of discussing I think like love, but it's also, I think it fits with everything else that she's saying in the book about, you know, what you kind of like the meaning of life, right? It's like this meaningful achievement, right? And I think that she would argue that like sharing love with someone is an achievement in itself too, in the person that you are able to do that with. Yeah. And I also think it's, again, it's a very actual strong way of viewing a relationship in general. Yeah. It's a very like, in some ways, it's a very modern idea, but it's also, it's like rooted in some ways in a traditional idea. Yeah, well, he, she uses that phrase. He'll want the let me get the exact wording here. Only the possession of a heroine, right? She's using the word possess, right. which is a very, you know, it, like that phrasing would, I think, cause a lot of hot water today. <laughs> you think? <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't feel like a it doesn't feel like the way it would be interpreted, right? No, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't feel like property. Yeah, which is how that's how it'd be interpreted for sure. Yeah, exactly. I would take that more to mean or at least what she probably was trying to or what she was trying to convey is like possession in like possessing her mind, basically, like she's obsessed with you or or possessing her love. Yeah, possessing her. love. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's like her. It's not possessing like in terms of property, like, oh, you have to wear this and you can't you have to, you know, like it's not possessing in the traditional like Islamic sense. Right. That's probably a good way to compare. It's definitely not that. Yeah, but it's like possessing her love. Yeah, that's probably the best comparison. Yeah, but it would definitely be interpreted the first way. <laughs> <laughs> it would get taken out of context. Yeah, I'm, I can picture the BuzzFeed headline already. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know we shit on BuzzFeed all the time. Sorry, guys. Uh, but it's so it's easy. Though. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I think I just want to read this last quotation and then we can wrap up. Cool, cool. So this is just this is my favorite part of the speech that it kind of wind, or wraps up on. And I think this is probably like a few of the quotations you, you see from the book the most. So and this is kind of at the end of his three hour speech to the world. He says, in the name of the best within you, do not sacrifice this world to those who are its worst. 
In the name of the values that keep you alive, do not let your vision of man be distorted by the ugly, the cowardly, the mindless in those who have never achieved his title. Do not lose your knowledge that man's proper estate is an upright posture, an intransigent mind, and a step that travels unlimited roads. Do not let your fire go out, spark by irreplaceable spark, in the hopeless swamps of the approximate, the not quite, the not yet, the not at all. Do not let the hero in your soul perish in lonely frustration for the life you deserved but have never been able to reach. Check your road and the nature of your battle. The world you desired can be won. It exists. It is real. It is possible. It is yours. Yeah, I love that passage. It's so good. All right. Well, we went through a whole episode without mentioning any of the lovely people who helped make it happen. Yeah. So we should probably do that now. Yep. I think with Sempered, we're supposed to do it at the beginning of the episode, right? So do we just give them a little freebie shout out here and not count it? Or how does that work? Uh, yeah, we can do that. I think it's fine. Yeah, we'll do it that way. So Scentbird, actually, I have it right next to me here. Um, it's probably why I smell so good. I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can smell me through the uh, computer net. I can. Uh, since we're doing this one remotely. <laughs> no, it's not that strong. But it's a really cool thing that, you know, I've, I've been traveling a lot. That's one of the reasons why we're doing this episode remotely today. It's been super useful. So Scentbird is this really cool website that you go on and you basically select perfumes or colognes, depending on your preference, not saying for guys or for girls, whatever floats your boat. Uh, so you kind of create a queue of scents you want to try. And then every month they send you a 30 day supply of that scent. And it's only $15 a month, I believe. But if you are a listener of this podcast, we have a very special deal for you where you get 50% off the first month. So it's only $750. Nat, correct me if I'm wrong, but the code is think. That is correct. I think all of our all of our codes are think, which is very convenient. Yes. So you can go to any of the you know sites that we're mentioning here and you can use the think code. You can try it on other sites that we're not mentioning here. It probably won't work, but <laughs> you can try. You can, you can try. try. You never know. <laughs> so yeah, definitely check out Scentbird. You know, you get to try out this uh, a new cologne or perfume every month, or you can just keep getting the same one. Like super easy if you want the automatic refills kind of at a discount and in a very travel friendly container so yeah well that's the best part i mean for me is like i mean i, I well and for you too i know you took it when you traveled it's just like it's small enough that you just throw it in your bag and you don't have to worry about you know is this too big for tsa or you know if you're and if you don't live in the u.s lucky you you don't have to deal with that thing but we always at least now i don't know about you i've definitely had to throw colognes out before yeah yeah it's not fun it's not fun especially if it's a you know exp- somewhat expensive you know i never bought like a couple $200 bottle of, uh, of cologne, but even in like a $50 bottle or $60 bottle, you're like, this hurts. Yeah, it still hurts. Yeah, so definitely check out Scentbird. Yep. Next, let's see, we've got, got well, my... keto. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, well, I have my mushroom coffee in front of me. Oh, as well. you do. Okay, well, we can. Oh, now we're confused. Now we're talking about both. But hey, you know what, you can combine them. So <laughs> if you want to get some perfect keto delicious MCT oil powder or MCT oil, they're both excellent, you know, medium chain triglycerides are really just great healthy fats for you. The oily version has a way of kind of like turning into a luby mess on your counter uh, if you're not careful <laughs> with it. So that's why I like to use the powdered version, which you can just mix in to your coffee drinks or into your mushroom coffee from Four Sigmatic. That makes a very lovely combination. It's a little easier than like having to cut off a bit of butter to put in your coffee and it's got like a nice creamy texture to it so uh, those two go together really well and you can get you know the mushroom coffee at foursigmatic.com slash think and that gives you 15 percent off i believe and you can get the perfect keto stuff at perfectketo.com slash think 
and that gives you 20% off, I want to say. We really got to double check these numbers. <laughs> the perfect keto one, I'm not sure. I, the Four Sigmatic one is uh, 15%, but I believe it does not work on subscriptions. But It does not. Still, you can go there and subscribe because it's delicious. It is delicious. <laughs> yes, perfect keto is 20% off, and they've got a lovely landing page with our logo, so you will know you are in the right place. And then last, but certainly not least. Last, certainly not least, Kettle and Fire for some delicious organic grass-fed bone broth to get some of those wonderful meaty nutrients that you don't get, especially if you are not eating a lot of organ meat, which I think most of us are not. I don't eat much organ meat, so make up for that with yep. my bone broth. You can use it for cooking. You can drink it straight from the carton. You can. I like to mix it with some cumin and chili and heat it up. That tastes really, really good. And then sip it. Yep. And then sip it. Nice. It's delicious. Yeah. I've been using it lately for, uh, I've been eating uh, quinoa a lot more lately. Oh, and, okay. Uh, I just use that as the, instead of water, I just use bone broth and nice. it makes it extra delicious because it's already spiced. Yeah. And it adds some good flavor and you get, you get, as you're saying, all these great nutrients that are missing from our diet. So yeah, it's great. Super convenient too. Shelf stable. Yeah, exactly. And it's shelf stable for like two years. So yeah. So actually you've got time to drink it. If I was a listener of made you think what I would do is I would go to kettleandfire.com slash think where our friends at kettle and fire have created these great packages for our listeners. So there's one, you know, it says it's shelf stable. You might as well do this and get, get the biggest savings. There's one that I believe gives you like a third off uh, of your purchase. It's like 30% or something plus free shipping. I definitely recommend that one. So give that one a shot and uh, it's shelf stable. So you don't have to worry about it expiring for two years. Yeah. If you order, if you order eight cartons, you get 28% off. So that's quite good. Uh, And that is to sign up for the monthly subscription, uh, which is totally worth it though. I mean, that's what I do. I just get a delivery every month. That's pretty great. But they also have, you know, 20% off, 25% off if you just want a single delivery. Yep. And then Neil, if you will forgive me the blatant self-promotion, I have one other offer for our listeners here. Hey, I do not care. (laughs) This is our show, so go for it. (laughs) (laughs) This this is why we do this in the first place. Um, I've recently launched a tea company called Cup and Leaf, and it is extremely early, but we do have our first teas up right now, and you can find them at, you can see the blog at cupandleaf.com, or you can see the teas themselves at shop.cupandleaf.com. And we've got 10 teas up there right now. There might be more by the time this podcast comes out. But if you want to go there and order any tea, you can use code THINK to get 20% off as well. So I would recommend in particular the organic Earl Grey cream. I think, Neil, you've had that one before when you've been over. That's delicious. Yeah, that is a phenomenal tea. And then the milk oolong. If you've never had milk oolong before, there's, there's like no tea quite like it. It is phenomenal it's got this like really rich creamy taste to it with like good oolongy notes as well it's like a pretty unique tea so if you haven't had that before i'd recommend that i've never tried it so i need to try that next time i'll give you some next time you come over yeah it's delicious hey this is cool we got a new sponsor yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> but you can you you can use code think to get 20 percent off or you can also just go to cupandleaf.com slash think and i'll set up a landing page there that everybody can go to to get that discount code cool and i think i think we did it yeah and beyond that just keep uh telling your friends keep tweeting at us keep emailing us we love it as you guys heard we did a listener episode a while back so if you want to know when the next listener episode is and to contribute to the next one in case you have questions for us you need to be on the email list which you can go to made you think podcast.com 
and subscribe there. Uh, and I guess other than that, um, leave a review. We love those, especially if they're good. Leave feeds our egos <laughs> a little bit. Only five star reviews. <laughs> Nothing else. Yeah, no, no four stars. None of no that. Four stars. None of that. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I guess other than that, keep listening, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.